0: Rob will stop breathing, sighing on this thing and sniffing. Sorry, the a script
1: still says fill this in twice.
0: So we may want to just. And I'm that trying off. to fill it in. Go ahead. Stop sniffling. Fill it in. Thanks. I'm telling you, go ahead. Proceed. Yeah, my mouth is starting to move. The engine is revving and you're cutting me off. Okay. Anyway, well, folks, Oh, that. this is Rob. I'm Rob. And I'm Marty. And welcome to Trades Planning. We're a podcast about two guys just shooting the breeze on international trade, business, and expat life. Also, dad jokes.
1: On today's episode, we will talk about carbon, carbon, carbon. Carbon chameleon. Carbon chameleon. (laughs) Suez again, and other diverse stories. We'll be also talking with Ron Steenslick about trade and environment. And as always, we'll have the usual news roundup and a UN word of the day. So without further ado,
0: let's get into it. All right folks, that brings us to episode 17 of Trades Planning. That's right, 17 big ones. We are now officially a teenager in the podcasting space. Who knew that we had this kind of staying power? We didn't, well, I, I would say. I mean, I think now we have to say that we all, we knew it all along. I think in Switzerland we're still eligible to drink wine and beer as a podcast. Yeah. And cheese, obviously. Cheese. 17 is also the atomic number of chlorine, for those of you listening and or interested. Fantastic. Probably not a lot of you, but just thought I'd throw it out. Throw there. it in there. Anyway, let's get right into the listener feedback segment. This week, one listener wrote us to mention that they loved Pierre Sauvé and Jan Hoffman as well, who are quote unquote legends. They also said that many of our guests have so much knowledge but they've also heard them a million times. They've heard Jan twice on our podcast, so maybe we're contributing a little bit to that. Overexposure. Yeah. But anyway, we digress. <laughs> they said they've heard them a million times, and they're actually wondering about the younger future peers and Jans of the world. When will we bring them on the, the the podcast? This listener rightfully pointed out that they don't get the platform to speak that others often do. And by doing so, Tradesplaining will be having people on who will be creating the future trade regulations and environmental rules as we move forward.
1: So, Artie, I mean, I I think comments well taken. Youth is kind of your department. What do we do to
0: euthanize, I'm using air quotes, our guests? I think that's a good hashtag, euthanize the vote. Yes. Euthanize the guest list. I think think I'll just start trolling uh, TikTok. TikTok, right. For uh, potential guests or entertainers. Yeah, that's not creepy. We can have one. Well, we have to meet demand. We have to react to consumer preferences, which are changing all the time. So let's go start practicing our dance moves, limber up. Yeah. We don't want you to pull a hammy. Create original content with our little splainers. Is it original content if you're just dancing to a song that somebody else wrote? We also had a nice uh,
1: comment from a colleague and listener who said the podcast is like a Christmas party, like the Christmas party every
0: episode. Does that mean that we're drunk? No, I think what she means is for people who don't know that, you know, this is a continuation of the Christmas parties we usually host every year. It's pre-COVID, obviously. So we'd like to thank her for that. I thought that was a good little quip and massage of the ego. And finally, one new and concerned listener also wrote to us saying that he really liked the tone of the podcast, but asked if it was really true that we receive hate mail, as we mentioned on the show quite often. And for those of you wondering, yes, we do, but we are completely okay with it. We're just happy to be getting any email. At Anything all. at all. Yeah. Trade.splating at gmail.com. That is correct. You remembered it at this time. Did I trip up on that? No, no you didn't. Trade.splaining at Every handle we have has trade and splaining in it. Does it? There's an, there's an iteration of that. <laughs> That's the hard part. Anyway, moving on. On that happy note, make sure you keep those emails, hate mail, diatribe, questions, comments coming. You can reach us at trade.splaining at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Twitter at splaining, and also reach us on Instagram at trade.splaining. And yes, I almost got confused saying those three social media handles in a row. They should all be the same, but they're not. But it's not possible. Who's the direct social around here? I'll have to write him an email. Yeah, let's talk to the team. I'll write mail to myself. Keep them coming, folks. Well, Roberto, like last episode, there's lots of interesting developments, this time on the trade and sustainability front. There's so much material, in fact, that it's almost as if we tailor the episodes to what's in the news at the moment. Yeah, we're smart that way. We call that being demand-driven. Or as we say in the business, market-led. Lucky. (laughs) (laughs) So we will be talking a lot about trade and sustainability and climate more broadly on this episode, bringing what we think are the most important bits of news around those themes this week. But before we pick up on that, we wanted to talk about something that's in the news that builds on last episode's discussion with uh, Jan Hoffman regarding the, the Suez Canal. And that is that one of Asia's busiest ports, Singapore, is preparing for an influx or deluge quote unquote, of ships and their shipping containers after the week-long blockage at the Suez Canal. Log jams and delays were already expected to worsen in Singapore, which at the time that the Suez Canal crisis was alleviated, already had 83 container ships waiting in line. Those ships altogether represented more than 300,000 containers. And then almost 400,000 en route to Singapore alone. Other major ports are also feeling the strain. And that includes Europe's Rotterdam port, as well as Port Klang in Malaysia. And then we're also talking about New York and Jebel Ali in the Gulf as well. So it's not just uh, limited to Singapore, but I think it's a good follow-up. One, because it provides us content to talk about. Yeah. Fills space. But it also shows, you know, how their one logjam leads to another when we're talking about how trade works, it's compounding many small things, as Jan said.
1: So it's if you've got a delay of five days here, or five days there, the containers then take longer to get back to where they need to be. And this is, as we've said, uh, having a huge impact on container rates and in general cost of trade and availability of some things. So we're still worried about whether Rob will be able to get a bike this uh, this summer or late late this summer. I think that's a major indicator. Can Rob get a bike or not of whether supply chains are working?
0: I wonder if the container shortage crisis glut will have an impact on if I'll be able to get a job or not.
1: Yeah, Is your job stuck in the Swiss Canal?
0: <laughs> Could be. This has not been reported yet. Oh, God. There's an oversupply of dad jokes is what there is. <laughs> and those do not seem to have the same issue. Supply no, chain no. wise. We're high on our own supply of dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> oversupply. The other bit of news we wanted to mention is on the vaccine front. We haven't as of yet gotten into the vaccine value chain part of it in great detail, which is something that we'll be talking about in the future. We have some great guests lined up, so stay tuned for that. But one thing we did want to talk about very superficially right now is that the U.S. is reported to be on track to have gathered an oversupply of millions of coronavirus vaccines, and they're under pressure for what's being called uh, sort of vaccine hoarding. Now, while the U.S. is hitting this saturation. And in some places, supply is greatly exceeding demand. The developing world, in contrast, will only reach 60% vaccination in, in 2023 and beyond. So there are a number of things being discussed and how to alleviate this, but interesting space to watch. Tell us a little about that, Ron. Sure. I think you got us right
1: there. The people are talking about, you know, should the U.S., for instance, release effectively what's been said as a as a preference for US vaccine makers for the raw materials. So shouldn't we open that? Shouldn't we provide licensing agreements so there's more manufacturing worldwide? Vaccines can be manufactured in the developing world. Should we wave IP requirements, not just for vaccines, but for other things. So all of these are basically ways to encourage the U.S. to be more open, which is trying to line up with what the administration has said they want to do. They re-entered COVAX, they're providing funding, and so on. So we'll see where that is. And I think it's an interesting case of trade rules and whether these are really trade restrictions, because they're not strictly trade policy. They are Related to contracts they've signed with raw material manufacturers and vaccine providers, so uh, watch this space. But I think the, that these charges of vaccine
0: hoarding are starting to get uh, more and more serious. I, I think it's interesting if I try to look at it from uh, you know a, a layman's perspective or somebody who's not in the nitty gritty of this every day. And people I talk to, it's, it's it seems that there's the, a political element about this that we don't really talk as much about. So from a technocratic point of view, you know, it's obvious that free trade is good. But when you're factoring in the political element in terms of, you know, countries have a duty to their to their citizens to get vaccines, have they maybe overcompensated? It's, it's quite possible in many cases. But I think it's also a missed angle within this wider discussion. That's something that I'm, I'm looking forward to, to talking more about with, with some of the guests that we have lined up. It's an interesting space. I, I just think it's important to balance both sides of that equation. Yeah, it's such a
1: challenge for multilateralism. We all think it's a good idea when it comes down to do we save shots for us or do we share them? We we kind of save shots for us. Yeah. And I don't just put the U.S. in that category. I think it's in different ways. Many, many countries where manufacturing, including India, have had the same kind of this, the same issue to deal with. We have a good episode title, Shots for Me, but Not for Thee. And that would also be what happened this week when I got a shot and thee didn't.
0: <laughs> I'm in that age category. Yeah. Well, th- this is also another episode title. It's called Don't Vax Me, Bro. Don't fax me, bro. Don't jab me, bro. Or uh, Boomer got the vax. That's me. <laughs> Boomer got vax. This is going to be a Sir Mix-a-Lot remix. <laughs> I'm not sure how we get out of that one. We're just going to plow right, right through out. it like a, like a snow truck. <laughs> the U.S. is also in the news on a more positive front, leading a climate summit as leaders talk about a global carbon tax. So the goal is to reduce carbon emissions by 50% by 2030. It's also significant in the fact that it's seen as a way to rival China from the U.S.'s perspective. So the Washington Post has talked a lot about this, specifically on things like climate diplomacy and maybe a bit hyperbolically the end of free trade itself. But what's going on there? Rob?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, so the U.S. has now committed to this reduction in emissions by 2030. So they've kind of lined up with what we talked about before. The Chinese had already made a commit such a commitment, the EU as well. And this is a good thing. And we see all of these these leaders talking whether it's going to be backed up with action, I think is is an open question. But clearly, it's a good signal. But also that we see the geopolitical tensions, as you mentioned. So there's a climate climate diplomacy. How do we, you know, again, it's a challenge for multilateralism, challenge for diplomacy, and this will affect trade as well. And that's when, you know, we talk about, of course, carbon tax, we're not there yet, but it's starting to be acceptable to talk about it again. So we can have carbon border adjustments. We can, you know, try to price carbon, into the way we trade and the way we consume. And even places like the American Petroleum Institute, not normally the environment guys, as we know, might find this to be something they could accept in some way. Mm. So let's see, it, it does seem to be a massive, it's a massive change in signaling, but is it a massive change in the way we do things? That's
0: still an open question. I, I think I'm, I'm sort of, I find it interesting that it's, it's okay to talk about carbon taxes again, even bring it up in discussion. It's like, you know, it's like a bad Nickelback song. It's okay to talk about it and say that you like it now, (laughs) when it wasn't possible before.
1: Are there good Nickelback?
0: No, there aren't, but I'd be open. It's conceptual.
1: (laughs) Look at this photograph. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the way things work, isn't it? We think it's never possible until suddenly mm, everybody thinks it is. Bobby
0: Kennedy said it.
1: The art of politics is making the impossible seem possible. Yeah. Is that because you were a speechwriter?
0: <laughs> As I re- if I remember correctly, I Did you come up you with got that? Line? I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm my a, old job. My, my life is a web of lies. I forgot I made that up.
1: <laughs> anyway, we digress. We digress. My wife is my wife is a web of lies. No wait
0: No, my life. Oh, my right. wife is a is an angel. You jerk. <laughs> VW also announced last month that it's going all in on electric vehicles and hopes to have the majority of its car sales in Europe, China, and the U.S. be uh, electric vehicle sales by 2030, which is a big, big deal. So much so that Porsche Group, which is not really known for its electrical vehicles. Vroom, vroom. Because, yeah, they don't go vroom, vroom. They just go swoosh yeah it's a Nike ad. yeah,
1: it's
0: fully behind it's fully behind this, and it's not surprising, considering that vW's stock price has soared in the past few weeks following the announcement. I don't know what you think, Rob. I see it as a very positive sign or a trend that consumers and in this specific case, investors are are looking towards sustainability more broadly and they're making a big focus on that with their wallets and their purchases. And I think enterprises, in this case, the biggest ones are are just reacting to capitalize on on these trends, which wasn't the case before.
1: I agree entirely. The interesting thing is, will electric vehicles be the thing that will help us get to lower carbon? And some people say maybe not, because they will only over time replace current cars. So they talk about, you know, if if you suddenly go to mass transit or you start bicycling, then you, you reduce your carbon right away mm. rather than waiting, OK, 10 years from now, I'm going to buy an electric car. So it's I think it's part of you And you're, you're right. It is a very good signal as part of it. But cities, I think, especially have to think about, is this the way or isn't there also a way to get people out of cars entirely? And also, of course, the manufacturing process and so on is not zero carbon. No, that is well. And and of course, in the U.S., you know, we're still talking about electricity that's often generated in a way that's not so carbon friendly.
0: So burning coal for the electric battery manufacturing plant is not good. Apparently,
1: that's not good. Although we use the word clean coal, if we just call it clean coal. It sounds better. It sounds better, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, It it sounds better. Yeah. gig
0: gig economy gig economy gig economy clean coal going into we the back We power the gig economy with clean coal <laughs> 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 Ring the gig economy of the future with clean coal. I don't know if it's going to save the planet, <laughs> which goes straight into your river and water supply. <laughs> I'm just really excited for when we get the first Ford F150 electric pickup truck. Can it still be? Could you, you still be? See? Could you still be a macho 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 man <laughs> with a Ford with, F150? With a Ford F150, it doesn't do vroom. It swishes. But it's big and it
1: doesn't guzzle gas. They'll put in a recording of like a very loud diesel engine.
0: That's actually not a bad idea. Probably. We should go work for Ford before they steal that idea. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of what went wrong this week's news segment. Now we'll move on to the interview with Ron Steenblick of the IISD and talk a little bit more about climate change, carbon border adjustments, and his favorite Boy George song.
1: Carbon, carbon, carbon. Is that the one, chameleon? It's coming.
0: Our guest this week is Ron Steenblik. Ron is a non-resident senior fellow with the International Institute for Sustainable Development. He's currently working on supporting negotiations on liberalizing trade and environmental goods and services and on quantifying and reforming subsidies to fossil fuels, including subsidies to primary plastic production. My old job. (laughs) Retiring from the OECD in
1: November 2018. Ron was its Special Counsel for Fossil Fuel Subsidy Reform. Also my old job in which Capacity oversaw the work on the OECD's inventory of government support to fossil fuels and shared the peer reviews of fossil fuel subsidy reform. That was not (laughs) my job. That was somebody else's job. (laughs) Ron has also worked on issues of the nexus between agriculture and the environment. Also another guy. And on fisheries policy. You've been busy. (laughs) And before that, he served as first director of research for IISD's Global Subsidies Initiative.
0: Guilty. So, Ron, thanks for doing some trade planning with us. Why don't we jump in with the first question? And that is by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. So how did you get into the field of trade in your particular area? What's the journey been like?
2: So I, I came to, into the trade area somewhat accidentally. It was the early 1970s. So post Earth Day over the next 15 years, I worked in a number of jobs, mainly in energy. When I went back to graduate school, I studied energy policy and ended up as a young professional at the U.S. Energy Information Administration in Washington. Mm. The office's resident expert on international trade and coal had just died. So logically, they asked me to work on that topic. <laughs> After a couple of years, I got a Rotary Foundation scholarship to study at Erasmus University in the Netherlands. I would worked for a British expert on oil, natural gas. So of course, I became the resident expert on coal. I, I think the guy who had been working on coal there had also just recently died. <laughs> After a couple of other jobs, I ended up at the International Energy Agency to work on, you guessed it, coal. Coal. My predecessor hadn't died, but he had left early under very mysterious circumstances. <laughs> My first job was to estimate subsidies to coal producers, which then put me in contact with people working at the OECD. So eventually, I transferred to there and later worked for a couple of years on fisheries policy. And here we are, 20 more than 20 years later, and it's still Mm. being negotiated at the WTO. I I did that for a few years, then took off for two in 2006 and 2007 to serve as the first director of research at the Global Subsidies Initiative of the International. Institute for Sustainable Development. After I turned to the OECD, and in 2009, the the G20 they had this declaration where they committed to to phasing out their fossil fuel subsidies. And and so that's how the OECD got into this. And eventually, before I retired at, in 2018, I was the OECD special counselor on fossil fuel subsidies. So that's not totally trade related, but as we see, we've see we seen in some of the structured discussions lately, it's definitely a topic that's coming back to the WTO.
1: And nobody died to get you that last job yet. I don't think so, but the job didn't exist. <laughs>
0: We're <World> all terminal.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we jump in and let me start start you off to talk about trade rules? So the, the WTO rules they don't do a lot to to favor sustainability. So a product, for instance, that's grown in a way that's deforested, that ruins the earth, or is manufactured in a very unsustainable way, is treated exactly the same as a non-sustainable product. So that that's one example, and I know there are many others. So the the rules don't seem to be helping us. So should this change, and can trade rules? help us promote sustainability? Can they help us address climate change?
2: Yeah, this is the quintessential issue that since the WTO started talking about trade and environment after several disputes in the late 1980s and and early 1990s of how do you deal with differences in what they call processes and production methods or shortened to PPMs. The particular reason it's a problem is that the the way that trade has always worked from the standpoint of clearing customs is that it passes by customs officers and they have to be able to tell what a good is. And, and if they can't tell, make the distinction as it crosses the border, then, then basically they, they don't want to have to be responsible for anything else. So the, there, there are a couple exceptions of where there's some differentiation on the basis of how things made. So, for example, there, were, there was a special category made for hand-loomed rugs a few years ago to distinguish from machine-loomed rugs. But but you can actually a trained customs person can actually look at the the weave and uh, warp and weave and say aha no that was that was made handmade but yeah yeah like you said if it's if the wood is otherwise identical how there's no way that they can tell that it has been produced through through denuding the forest as opposed to mm-hmm carefully harvesting from
1: a well-managed port. But should Um, that change? I mean, one of the reasons we're asking is because Switzerland just was voting on a trade agreement with Indonesia mm -hmm. where they were going to give a tariff for a certified product that was lower than a non-certified product. So... Could that be a thing?
2: I think it remains to be seen. So far, there have been these kinds of distinctions. But as you mentioned, they, it's one thing if, if it's a private, private label. But of course, that's, that doesn't involve tariff differentiation. But I know that Switzerland and sometimes the EU in the past have, have basically said, well, what if we just recognize these products as having been certified by private labels and then and then apply some kind of tariff differentiation on that? But of course, that begs the question of, well, who sets the standards and, and who basically approves or, or credits the, the certifiers? And is it just the, the standards applied by the importer or is there some international standards? There are a lot of complications that are very difficult to, to deal with in, in, in a trade kind of situation.
1: And it kind of has to be regulated on one end or the other then. It's not a trade thing. It's not trade's fault in a way. It's not about the trade. It's about what happens on either the production end or the consumption end.
2: Well, that's yeah. That's what a lot of people would say is that at the end of the day, it's really the responsibility of the of the producing country to to do it correctly. And but you no, know, there are just a lot, a lot of technical and legal questions to to being able to make that as a basis. Because when you're when you're talking about tariff differentiation, you're talking about real money. And one of the issues is that whenever you have a a Process that depends on, say, some intermediary that that checks up and says yay or nay that they've met this particular standard. That leaves that creates a lot of pressure on that certifier. It it opens uh, possibilities for for corruption. It and then you there. It also means that that the exporter has to be able to to provide a lot of data. And many times that exporter might just not have the capacity to provide the kind of information that's needed to to make this kind of decision. So it 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 tends to to work against countries that just don't have the capacity to be able to to show that they're meeting these standards.
0: You want to take next one?
2: He doesn't like the question. I'm from
1: I'm a coastal elite. I see, I see. <laughs> 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 so okay, maybe I was simplifying it when talking about trade rules or tariffs. But for instance, there's been, as you said, twenty years of discussion on another thing that has a big environmental implication, which is fishery subsidies. So the fisheries are are subsidized. There's overfishing. This has a pro, You know, has a huge impact on the, the 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 number of fish out there and and potentially the biodiversity and so on. So is 20 years enough? Dr. Ngozi, the new head of WTO says 20 years is enough. We should bring this home. What do you think, do you think that they can bring it home? Can they agree on on the fishery subsidies agreement, which would reduce subsidies and, and have potentially a very positive effect on the environment?
0: And I guess also it would be good for for listeners to get a better sense of, one, as Rob asked, what are they negotiating on? Why is 20 years not enough to get an agreement on here? And what are sort of the main impediments to this? What could possibly be holding up an agreement like this for for 20 years?
2: Well, some of it comes down to uh, the question of special and differential treatment and, and should developing countries be able to provide subsidies and particularly for artisanal fisheries. And these are terms that are, that are being that are that differ from one country to another. For example, when I worked on fisheries, one of the Scandinavian countries had a category for artisanal fisheries and and artisanal fishers or or, or recreational fishers were allowed to use nets a, a kilometer long. I don't know how many <laughs> recreational fishers use something that that big. I wouldn't be able to fed it into a, a truck, I mean net that long. But a lot of it I think comes down to to that of differences between developed and developing countries and developing countries feeling that they want the flexibility to 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 be able to subsidize to build up their fleets, particularly those who are at the moment, like in West Africa, that are have a lot of foreign fleets that are coming in and and dominating their their fisheries, particularly in the outer edges of, the, of their exclusive economic zones. But also, it, it's it's waxed and waned in terms of importance during the period first when the multilateral negotiations, the door round was, was really in full force. And then then finally, the members deciding that, well, we'll, we'll take this on as, as a separate issue and, and reopen it and, and so forth. But I think the important thing about the 20 years for the fishery subsidies is that if we're looking at that for climate, that we don't have 20 years to to wait. If if people are looking to the WTO yeah. to provide the answer,
0: that that was going to be my next question. So I think I don't know if this is for most people, but I get all of my climate-related information from David Attenborough and and his movies. So I, <laughs> I so I saw his, his mission statement on Netflix, and they talk a little bit about the fisheries negotiations and and basically how this could be one potential solution for one of the many issues that we face in terms of climate and climate change and, and climate related to obstacles it, is that hyperbole do you think or it could a positive result on fisheries negotiations really bring about this type of positive impact in terms of environmental considerations
2: i think it's important to conclude it partly symbolically because it's the the only multilateral part of the the negotiating mandate on the environment that, that still survives. They may come back to environmental goods and services later, but at the moment that's that's the main thing. And so if they don't succeed in getting this, it really brings into question the ability of the WTO to, to conclude anything on related to trade and environment, period. But will it solve everything on fisheries? No. I mean that the, the really big issue on fisheries is management. Not, I mean, subsidies are an important issue and, and they're crazy. I mean, subsidies should not be a Rain on countries' finances. So, to the extent that it shows that the that things can get done and and we start to make a progress to to in recognition of the need for reform in fisheries, I think that's positive.
0: But it, it won't solve all the problems. While we're on this topic of of climate change and, and developing countries, one question we we have is there tends to be this broad suspicion among developing countries that any and all or most solutions to climate change. That are proposed by rich countries for instance when you're talking about a carbon border adjustments and things like this they're just another way to hold back development so the question is are they right are developing countries really being forced to bear a larger relative share of of the socioeconomic burden
2: yeah i i think that that the developing countries have a point but but i think that there's a there's a place where they where the developed and the developing countries can meet on this and that is the increasing help of a technical nature maybe some of a financial nature from the developed countries to the the developing countries to to improve their their carbon footprint to reduce their use of fossil fuels etc et, et they but sometimes I I do feel as if maybe some developing countries are are really not, Thinking hard enough about the, the, the benefits to themselves of, for example, reducing the carbon emissions can also reduce emissions of local pollutants like a particulate matter. I mean, we see in, in places like Delhi just outrageously high emissions of, of PM 2.5, you know, uh, small particulate matter that is extremely harmful to 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 people, and that that. It's in their own interest to, to reduce fossil fuel combustion, which is really at the end of the day the the, the, the big problem. And not just say, Well, we're a developing country and therefore we we should be able to do what we want. I mean, yes, in, in one sense, all countries are sovereign and have the right to do what they want, but but they I I would like to see them think more about their the own co benefits for themselves of of doing this. But yes, I mean to come back to things like border carbon adjustment, I understand why why several countries are considering it because they're they're afraid of of, of carbon leakage and the competitiveness effects of of, of Going more and more stringent. The, whether or not some of those concerns are are also a little bit exaggerated, I, I think there's an argument sometimes to to be made in that area as well. So, but what I I would also like to echo, though, one thing that was said by PRA in in. In your interview with him, which is that at the end of the day, too many people look to blame environmental problems on trade when actually the issue is elsewhere. But also look to the trade regime to solve environmental problems that should be dealt with by other
1: fora. It's very political to think well we've already cut all our trees and we we've already done all the polluting we're going to do we've kind of exported some of that in a way for into goods that we're consuming that are being manufactured for instance in china and now we're going to suddenly put a tax i think it it really plays into this developed versus developing dynamic and it really plays into their feeling like we need to consume we need to produce now we can't wait we can't slow without seeing necessarily and maybe I'm oversimplifying, but that's certainly the way the dialogue comes up.
0: Also, I can't see because of the smog.
1: I had one of those those days in Beijing. Yeah, well I mean this
0: is what this is what some of the
2: people are saying about in China is that actually there are some people quite quite optimistic about China that the that complaints of that the people are able to express their their opposition to pollution in, in China more than on some other topics and, and that the government does feel sensitive about this and 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 they're reacting. I mean of course part of that's tied also with their industrial policy, which is to move into the high tech goods and so forth. But of course I mean the, the developing world is a lot more than just China. And and I and I certainly have sympathy with, with the feelings of of the non developed world of of they don't want Want to sacrifice their their own development and and yes, looking to the, the existing industrialized countries and saying, well, you guys created most of the of the carbon in the atmosphere, don't blame us. So there there definitely needs to be a lot of sensitivity applied here and and some ways. But I think that there it shouldn't be a permanent kind of status. I mean, the the, the, the whole world needs to
0: decarbonize and not too long. It's all by Tesla's. On on that on that happy note, you're welcome, Elon.
1: <laughs> I think we want to also talk to you about life as as expats. Now, Ron, you are in, in Paris. In Paris, okay, that's, that's
2: Paris, cool. France, not Paris, Texas.
1: Thank you. That's yeah, exactly. Good <laughs> talk about desert. Okay, so obviously, the question that I know you you've been you know waiting for us to ask you: any bikes stolen in Paris?
2: No, not not in Paris. In Any case, for a long time, I've been using the rental bikes, the Bay Vélib' system, so I, I don't really worry about that. I, I check it in, and then it's their responsibility. But yes, in when I was in the states, I had uh, bicycles stolen three times: in twice in Florida and then once in Washington D.C. An incredible thing is in all three cases. The thieves are stupid enough to return them with their own lock to the bike racks from which they had stolen them. So I got I my bike back that's in all three cases.
1: That's just really nice. That's amazing. That's, that's, that was neat uh, uh, three, time, three, three it, times. Three times is that? Three, is that, three that, times uh, a charm. It's this is a, this is a story that probably requires a little further discussion. Yeah, that's another episode. I think. Yeah, exactly. We'll we'll come back to that one. So, Ron, what's the what are the what are the do you, do you follow local news in Paris and what what's the most absurd story in your neighborhood?
2: A bit the I would say the most absurd news about paris that comes from the united states so for example a a few years ago the right-wing media was was selling the story that there were no-go so-called no-go areas in paris for for tourists and what was really (laughs) wonderful was that then reporters followed up and went into the neighborhoods and went around with a microphone and asked the locals why are they we're willing to live in such a dangerous place, and expressions of incredulousness from those people was just priceless. So I, I always love when that happens. You 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 get some kind of exaggerated story from the from the foreign press, and then people come and do a fact check. Sh-
0: Champs Elysees is kind of a no go if you want to have. It's very crowded. Uh, a normal day, if you don't want to spend <laughs> an hour to walk. I've gotten into a human tra- a human traffic jam on Christmas time. Well,
2: they're definitely no go areas in terms of COVID because they get too crowded.
0: Yeah, these days. That's right. So, I mean... We, we can't... We, we have to finish off yes, the episode right. with the, the dessert topping that is interview questions. Yep. Especially when it comes to trade splitting. And that is, where in Geneva is your favorite kebab? Rob has his preferences. He usually asks leading questions, so I won't. But what I will say is that it's usually not Alamir, which I've been told is actually better than Parfum de Beirut. Ron? You don't have, if you
1: come to Geneva, do you have a favorite kebab or what's the one? What's the, what's I the cannot cool tell ability? a
2: lie. I've never eaten a kebab in, in Geneva. Probably the last kebab I ever ate was in Turkey. But for one, is know. that Paris doesn't really have very good Indian restaurants. So I'm always going out for Indian food in, in Geneva. But I am right now very excited about a local Lebanese store around the corner that sells. Extremely good falafel sandwiches. So if you ever come to Paris, I'll I'll definitely show you what a good falafel Mm. sandwich tastes like.
0: Which... How do we find it? Which arrondissement is well, it? Well, before he names it, we he need to work out a sponsorship arrangement. We can't just yeah, exactly. Insert name here. Parfum de Beirut is like dining out on on all this free sponsorship you're giving him. This is like, sorry, I'm sorry, I have to rant. the Parfum de Beirut is like the bubblegum shrimp in Times Square of Geneva. We could do
1: yeah, we could do like NPR. Like start off this like, I just love Parfum de Beirut. Mm just like and that. The
0: funny thing is, if if you're a, if you're a regular, Alamir is literally two steps away. Yep. So if you walk past Parfait de Beirut, they usually pop out to see, like, where is he going or she's. Yes. And if you go, so you have to, like, walk around the block a few times. And we go both in. know
1: that if we start east of Parfait de Beirut, we go there. <laughs> but if we start west of it, we end up at El Amir. We can't remember which one it is <laughs> <laughs>
0: because yeah. it's 3
1: a.m. So I think that probably brings us to a close. Thank you very much. I think it worked really well.
0: I think we, well, we learned a lot on uh, not just to make it about ourselves, Rob, but we, I think we did learn a lot about topics <laughs> we, we just speak, as I said, very superficially about. But well, it is about ourselves. So
1: thank you very much for the time. And where can we find out more about the work you're doing? If people want to learn more about what you do, where should they go?
2: Well, what I'm currently doing, you can go to the iisd.org website. I've written several blogs and a couple of papers on that. And... and contributions to their new journal called the trade and sustainability review a new the second edition which will be coming out in just a a week or two and then uh, more generally the research gate for for my past work fantastic
0: so that brings us to the overheard at the un beach club segment everybody's favorite revival we've rebooted this recently you'll be happy to and they are open they are open for business and it's kind of warm enough, it's getting there, it's creeping up. So
1: I I was there, obviously, and as with everybody, I was celebrating English as a Mother Tongue Day. On twenty three April, you do get around. I get you still around. haven't
0: made it the other side of the lake, though. This
1: one's on this side of the lake, thankfully. And uh, you know, you and I dabble in English. We're not I've great known, at it. I've been known to dabble, but we did really badly fail the English test the UN put out. By we, you mean you. You didn't take it. Yeah, is the thing. From many countries, many words from uh, different use of English. So there was only one word they asked us to define from the U.S. So they gave us a word. It was called adorkable. Adorkable. So Artie, what does adorkable mean to you?
0: Before I answer, I'm still trying to process this. Was that really a thing?
1: That's a thing. That's
0: a thing. Okay. So um, they
1: had words from places like Guyana
0: and Nigeria and India and places like that. I'm going to profess. I don't know if this is because I've been in an expat for too long, but I've never heard the word adorkable. But if I had heard of it, what it would mean to me would be something Taylor Swift wrote in a song. <laughs> do you want to hum a it. few bars? No? You're adorable to me. Maybe instead of Don Cushain, they could sing adorable adorable
1: that's what you are Adorkable. <laughs> apparently it means you're so dorky it's that cute. it's cute and that i think defines planning. I, I wouldn't say
0: we're dorky we're, we dorky? we're like we're we're risqué the we're, way you say that's pretty dorky we 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 say things with panache and elan <laughs> <a long. laughs> so dorky it's <laughs> dorky it's fine i own it we are adorable we are adorable and you're adorable to me we need to put this on social call the team on social call the team. on social <laughs> i'm trying to do the lingo on social you're failing don't <laughs> try just trying but what does adorkable mean <laughs> yeah it means that, just that not doing what we were doing before and calling it a different name that's actually a good point that that is
1: exactly what we've been trying to do all along but now we're going to call it that
0: okay uh, now i'm on i'm confused yeah exactly but i'm on second what's on you're on first third oh. anyway moving on moving on digressing That brings us to the This Week in Local News. You wouldn't believe it was true unless you lived in Geneva. Big story, you'll be glad to know only 17 trout
1: died. In a recent emergency, apparently, molasses spilled into a local river here in nearby France. Professional firefighters from both sides of the border were mobilized. They did not cross the border with any meat, if you were wondering about that. They or were spring mobilized, rolls? or spring, or spring rolls. They poured fresh water into the river to dilute the molasses. Many fish were saved, were moved to safer parts of the river, and the only those seventeen trout. I don't know how they counted them, but those seventeen trout didn't
0: make it. So, a crisis was averted. It was a trout aside. <laughs> I'm just wondering if, if this is a real story or not, because it sounds like the whole plot to Jurassic Park. Apparently, molasses is very dangerous. So they described an incident
1: in 1919 when 21 people were killed by molasses in the U.S. You mean diabetes? No, like literally molasses. Drowning in molasses? Yeah. Yeah. Now you're talking out of your molasses. Yeah. <laughs> this is true i'm telling you i know people keep writing us and they keep saying why are you making these stories up i research this i can attest rob actually reads
0: this stuff so anyway rest easy it happened allegedly the trout are okay this this took a really sad turn last week it was (laughs) arbicide and toads were dying you become very grim you're like the edgar allen sorry the toad story was a positive they're getting frisky this is becoming morose splaining well, folks, this is about wraps
1: up this week's episode. We'd like to thank our guest, Ron Steenblick, for joining us in discussing trade and discussing traded
0: environment. And climate and carbon border taxes and the death of his bosses.
1: Yeah, there were a few that did drop.
0: It's not his fault. Actually, death of a salesman could be his... Death of other salesmen could be yes. his <laughs> autobiography. Death of other salesmen. <laughs> the Ron Steenblick story. The <laughs> Ron Steenblick story. That's right. So as you said, Rob, thanks, Ron, for joining us. But also more importantly for our listeners out there, don't forget to download this episode if you haven't already. Subscribe to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon. And by very soon, I mean next week. Also feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are reading, we are watching. So is Tim Cook. So uh, yeah, exactly. We gotta bump up those numbers. These are rookie numbers as Matthew McConaughey says. We can do better. We can do better. We will do better via you guys. You can also (laughs) follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or Instagram at trade.splaining. Or also email us or your questions, comments to us at trade.splaining at gmail.com. We do not accept a carrier pigeon or post because we don't have a PO box though. We don't have a PO box.
1: And a big development could be coming up. Many of you have seen, we are in search of a an intern. We're looking forward very much introducing that person once they're on board and to then actually having a team. We are a team. We are a team. It takes two to tango. But we can say we'll call the team in the future. So thanks again for listening, folks.
0: Now the mask just completely dropped. You're the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. Thanks. Ciao, folks. We are a team. Nice to be here with you. Keep listening. (laughs) And that's the last time I listen to Trade Explaining. Ciao, folks. (laughs) What is an outro? (laughs) Is that Italian outro? It's an outro. Out? Outro.
1: It says outro.